Please stand for the reading of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of God. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the inhabitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for others, whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up to it. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God, and all God's people said... You may be seated. So if you've taken up the task of reading through the book of Isaiah for an Advent exercise, then you might have made it through chapter 35 by now. In fact, if you are following the reading schedule I put together and sent out recently, then that would have taken you through 37, according to my my notes, as of yesterday. So don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who, uh, of those of you who are there. Uh, but if you have gotten that far and you have read through 35 uh, and you've read carefully, one thing you may have noticed is that Isaiah 35 is a kind of mirror image of the preceding chapter, Isaiah 34. That chapter, 34, <clears throat> spoke of the fate of the arrogant nations and all who trusted in them. Uh, This is uh, toward the beginning of 34. It says, The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Verses 2 and 4. It's quite a different image than the one we just read from Isaiah 35, is it not? Our text today speaks of the destiny of those who turn from that path to a resolute trust in Yahweh, the one true God. Now, it may be argued that there is no mention of trust in this chapter, or even in chapter 34 for that matter. I grant you that. That is certainly correct. However, the larger context on both sides of these chapters makes the point clear enough, I think. Throughout chapters 28 through 33 of Isaiah, the central issue was the very stupid advice 
of the leaders of that time that the Judeans should trust in Egypt. Yes, Egypt. In the next chapter, chapter 36, we see that the Assyrian officer will actually mock the idea of trusting Yahweh. So even though the words are not used here explicitly in our text, the question of trust is the underlying concept at play in the message of Isaiah 35. What happens if a people trust and pledge their allegiance to the one who rules the nations instead of the nations and their leaders? The answer to that question, I think, is beautifully presented in our text today. Some churches celebrating Advent give each Sunday a particular theme, usually summarized in a word, so hope for the first Sunday, and then peace, joy, and finally, of course, love. And so even though we're not leaning into this approach this year, I think we've done that in the past, we're not observing these themes explicitly, it is worth noting that this text from Isaiah 35 is an extraordinary match to the traditional theme of Gaudete, rejoice. It's the Rejoice Sunday, this third Sunday of Advent, traditionally. The theme of joy pulses through Isaiah 35. You can feel it from, every, from the very first line, with its glad lands and blossoming deserts, to the last when a ransomed people come home, singing the praises of Yahweh, their Savior. It's a glorious image. All four Old Testament readings for Advent this year are from Isaiah. Pastor Booth and I have been sharing those in our sermons. But the first three texts, including this one today, are really sisters, I think, sharing some distinctive qualities that are absent in the fourth, which will be preached next week. On the first Sunday of Advent, I preached from Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, that grand image of uh, the world made new. Last week, Pastor Booth took up Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, with that imagery of the stump of Jesse, etc. And then today, of course, we turn our attention to 35. Now, each of these passages is poetic. They're all in poetic form. Most of Isaiah is. Each of these passages envisions fantastic transformations. Each pertains to massive numbers of people. Each involves changes to the created world itself. Each describes the ultimate future of the world under God's rule. And so hearing these three sister texts preached together subsequently, I hope you will be able to detect some of their continuities and point to how today's text actually extends the first two. I'll give you some ideas about how it may do that. While the first two celebrate uh, coming transformations of weapons and economies and social orders and animals, Isaiah 35 announces coming transformations of land and of human disabilities, locations, emotions, and destinies. It sings of liberations, jubilant homecomings, and the end of all sorrow and sighing. It replaces deserts with the acres of bright blossoms, streams, pools, and marshes. More exuberant than the preceding text it is, it reports leaping, singing, rejoicing, gladness, and everlasting joy. Our text is also more refined poetry, too. Isaiah 35 has the feel of, of something culminating. Things are coming together here. A cascade of bright images, a ringing of many bells. And somewhat ironically, this makes it a challenging text to preach. You may wonder why that is. 
But I want to bring you with me just for a moment into the preacher's dilemma in preaching a text like this in order to make a finer point. What does a faithful preacher do with such a swirl of happy glimmers from a vision? Where do we focus? What do we leave out? What do we not say? How can the sermon find movement and integration in a text like this? As always with such texts, how does the preacher translate these extravagantly imagined hopes for a long-ago Israel into meaningful hopes for current conditions anywhere and everywhere? For the present and or the future, for others and ourselves, for concrete historical realities that we face right now, or for possibilities somehow beyond or deeper than measurable time? How does the preacher package all of the peculiarities of a text like this for his own people in a localized time and place? Well, those are good questions. I don't necessarily have answers to all of those, although I'm doing my best. But I want to suggest that the preacher's dilemma is exactly the difficulty being dealt with in the text itself. Think about it. The problem of connecting old hopes with the need for new ones is exactly what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah 35 understands that those certain of the old promises came true, their fulfillments were somehow unfinished, not altogether satisfying, and are in need of new expression. In some ways, the promise of a wilderness highway, which we see in this text at the very end there, a wilderness highway for exiles had already come and gone for Judah. Captives from Babylon had returned to Zion long ago, but disappointments met them. Judah was a prolonged devastation. In modern, modern parlance, we could say Judah at some points in their history were a, were a real dumpster fire. New oppressions overtook their plan. But now in the far extended bleakness, this prophet poet Isaiah chooses of all things to retrieve the old vision of a highway in the desert. The promise will be fulfilled once more, says the prophet, but its meaning will be broader, deeper, and more fully true. From everywhere on earth, the ransomed will return to Zion. All the scattered promises will be joined in fulfillment together, like in a dance, in a communal dance. Earth renewed, bodies remade, freedoms conferred, the city reclaimed, new joys bestowed, and sorrow and sighing banished. The text itself, in other words, is doing what good preaching must do. It's claiming old texts and promises for new situations extending their trajectories, suggesting new convergences, revisioning God's dominion in the future and in the present. This is the move that Advent in particular requires us to make. We have to apply these visions to our time as we wait in Advent yet again. The promised Emmanuel has already come and is surely still among us right now. So why on earth are we singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel? It's a thoughtful question to ponder. The short answer is that we sing it because Emmanuel's visitation among us is a partially unsatisfied fulfillment. The innocent still suffer in the present. The earth itself groans under the weight of sin. Bodies are broken. 
Cities remain lawless. Families sometimes are joyless. And human hearts everywhere, including our own, are still sighing. Christ has come, yet we still wait. It's Advent again. The transformation promised in the previous Isaiah text for Advent glistens in this one in every line. Redemptive reversals will be dramatic and complete, we see. What kind of changes do worshipers in a state of Advent seek? What are we longing for? What do we sigh for? What sorrows have brought us to tears in recent days? I do not know what haunts the hearts of everyone in this room today. And you don't know what haunts me. But we can take a cue from Isaiah, who speaks in detail of how the world looks now, think of chapter 34, and what it will be when God has saved it. Just as the prophet wrote for a scattered and disheartened people, I too speak to a people who have experienced fragmented lives in a fractured world and who sometimes endure broken hearts. But our text speaks concretely of wholeness, the promise of wholeness. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, the mute will sing. Surely this promise goes deeper than the physical aspects of our existence. It penetrates right down to the soul. Such healing also has a communal dimension. Since disability, like disease, would render a person unclean under Levitical law, and therefore they would be excluded from the community because of that. So we cannot forget the power of the communal dimension of healing and wholeness that this text envisions. We are accustomed to read in Scripture that the people of God are to rejoice. Many a psalm make this point. But in this chapter, as the prophet shares God's vision for Judah, even the desert itself, the dry places in the wilderness, is seen rejoicing in God's glory. It's fascinating. The created order shares in the divine glory and in the work of reconciliation. Here verses 1 and 2 again. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. A land that was scorched by the enemy in war will be renewed and restored as the people are reminded that they and their land belong to Yahweh, the God of their rescue. God's grace is not limited to the wholeness and redemption of human beings alone. It reaches to all creation, every dimension. The kingdom of God is cosmic in scope. When Jesus came, he ushered in the whole kingdom reality. If this prophecy imagines God's reach beyond humanity to all creation, humanity can also take heart that it's included in God's concern for the entire created order. The good news at Advent is this, that God has not taken off on some retreat while we remain in despair. But that the God who cares for the dry and barren places of the land and for our, in our hearts, for his parched people, he is there, he is present, he is with them in the dryness. God shows up even in the desert and barren places of life as we await for renewal, restoration, and salvation in his perfect time. We live in light of that hope. The God who cares for the world also cares for you. Offering change not only for the wild and barren places, but also for those who are faint in heart and weak in the knees, our text tells us. 
According to the prophet, weak hands and feeble knees are to be strengthened. In anticipation of the God who awaits us in a new future, we are challenged now to be strong and be of good courage. Just like in Isaiah 2, we were challenged to walk now in the light of the Lord because of these promises. The circumstances on the ground that confront God's people on a daily basis are really similar to the desert and the wilderness. That's a, that's a metaphor I really don't even have to make uh, a connection with. We know that. We experience it. But the God who awaits us is faithful, and he has prepared a new future for the covenant people in the form of a new humanity, a new people. Hope includes a new confidence that the barren and dry places will be made verdant again. The imminent presence of God in Christ, for he has tabernacled among us and does so this very day, provides courage and strength for everyone who's timid and weak-hearted, who's afraid of tomorrow. There are rational and genuine reasons why Judah was scared at this time. Enemies are real and powerful. Threats are abundant. In their own strength and efforts, the people would be made like dry places and barren land. But the God who has covenanted to restore creation is faithful and will come to save them. They will fail. He will not. This is the interpretive key for our passage today. God is their salvation. It is God who saves. It is the promise of divine presence among his people that strengthens these sinking hands and failing knees. From a physical point of view, Judah is no match for Assyria, the great Assyrian army. But all creation, including dry and barren places, can give glory to God because God is on the way to save his people. Behold, your God is coming, the text tells us, in liberation and salvation. Write it down, it's going to happen. But we must also reckon with the reality that not everyone will experience this. This is sobering. The promises celebrated here include God's vengeance and terrible recompense in verse 4. The unclean shall not travel the highway home, verse 8. But the wonderful thing is, God is in control. His sovereignty governs and builds this highway to Zion. He promises redemption for his people in his own way, and he does whatever is right. He brings judgment and salvation. Those always go together. The Lord will come and save, and he saves through judgment. He purifies his people. This is the precise language of Advent. It's longing, it's prayer, it's horizon that the Lord will come and save. But we still mature. We still need sanctification. We still need to move forward in faith. And so with such language as we see in the text, as usual, there comes a bracing command. There is a vision here of glorious things, but that is coupled with a command. And so in this poem, it holds a very prominent place not as a preliminary summons or or a concluding invitation, but right in the middle there are four strong lines of imperative within this vision. Strengthen the weak hands and make the firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are uh, fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. uh, So the promises are not dreamy here, but they insist on real consequences. 
in human action and in human spirit. The vision wants an incarnation in lips, hands, knees, and unterrified hearts. That's what this vision accomplishes for you. These words speak both to our mission of expressing good news for a languishing world, which is our duty. We are priests for the world. And to our own terror, weakness, and lost hopes within. It is important to note that this passage, in this passage, that with, when God shows up, he does so with vengeance. Not just a happy word. He comes in power and with vengeance. And so on the one hand, he does this to thwart all that would impede the return of his people to himself. Purity and holiness are necessary. And on the other hand, he comes to judge but yet provide a new future for Judah and the promise of hope. God always comes in judgment and salvation. Whatever separates God's creation and God's people from himself and his purposes, he must come, it must come under divine judgment. Obstacles will be removed and the covenant restored as people in the created order enter into the sphere of cosmic salvation. The divine presence means deliverance from sin, separation and all its consequences. And so the prophet points to the marks of salvation in the new future that awaits God's people. What are those? The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. It reminds you something when you read the Gospels. All creation will witness to the glory that God shall cover the earth as, as the waters cover the sea. God's presence as the waters cover the sea. And so the healing of those with physical disabilities is a messianic sign. It's a sign that what God has promised is coming to pass. It is a sign of the time of salvation that's ushered in by the one who is the object of our expectation, Jesus himself. Our Lord witnesses to this when in today's gospel reading, John the Baptist sends to ask Jesus if he is the expected one. He says, Matthew 11, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. Although the people are in a place of desolation, God will prepare a highway for them to the holy city. There is a way from the barren and dry places to this new space and place that God has prepared for the people of God. It will be a highway, indeed called the holy way, in the desert for them to travel into God's new future for them. God excels in making a way out of no way. Of bringing life out of death. That's what he does. And so this is our hope. Like the barren and dry places, God's people shall burst forth in singing and with praises to God as they return home to Zion. Every Lord's Day, this is our calling. This is what we do. Behold your God, he shall be your guide. For a quick note of irony and humor, let me point out that those who go to this passage for a hopeful Advent note may take particular comfort that verse 8b promises that not even a fool can go astray on this way of hope. Most of us need that reassurance. The hope that there may yet be a place for us on this highway of holiness. The message of Isaiah 35 does what Advent does, Christian. It points backward to old promises 
which point forward to a fuller future joy, indeed a fuller and future joy which is ours today. We still live in the in-between time as Isaiah's audience did. They were between promise and promised land. We will find our holy way toward home and our mouths will be filled with no more sighing and only song is the promise. And so the climactic verse in verse 10 leaves little doubt as to the identity of these addressees. For its promise, it promises return to Zion with singing and joy. Zion is the holy mountain of God on which the temple stood. The pinnacle and the symbol of God's presence with his people. And the Babylonians had reduced the temple to rubble and carried the citizens away into captivity in a foreign land. Think about how how devastating that was for these people. How desperate they were for a word of hope. And here it comes. The final word of this verse is one more reversal in this passage of divinely wrought reversals. The sorrow and sighing of destruction and despair when Zion was desolated shall flee away, it says, replaced by an everlasting joy. Exile is replaced by return. It's even better than it was before. The despair of those who were cut off from the future is replaced by the joy of those who see a new and unexpected future become possible again. What a marvelous Advent theme this ending makes. Advent celebrates the story of Jesus' coming, a promised and promising baby born into a Jewish people held in captivity under Rome, despairing about the future. The promise is of return, of restoration, of new ways into the future, and finally of joy to the world that is yours. And so the good news of Advent is this. Behold, your God is coming. The promise of divine presence means that judgment, judgment makes room for salvation. God's graciousness and generosity are expressed to all of creation in the promise of a messianic king who will reign in peace and righteousness for eternity. God has not given up on his original plan and purpose for creation. The intrusions and interruptions of this that are caused by sin are met with God's judgment as the way is prepared for salvation, the highway of holiness to Zion. The God of creation, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God incarnate in the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, he is faithful and will bring all things to their rightful end. And you, dear Christian, in your baptism, are united to this great promise and plan. Take comfort and hope in that, and live in light of that. We too often forget that the book of Revelation is a letter addressed to particular churches groaning under the weight and disillusionment of real suffering and persecution. Indeed, after the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus. The main pastoral thrust of John's vision in the book of Revelation is an exhortation to faithfulness in the midst of active suffering in anticipation of inheriting a final and complete salvation. Our theological memories are very weak, and so we must continually be reminded that the kingdom of this world, as taught throughout Christian scripture, is becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, as Revelation 11 reminds us. Though we do not yet see it fully manifested, we put our hope in the promise of God to consummate all things under Christ and to expect to live in glory with him in the new heavens and the new earth. 
This is the cosmic view of redemption. Christ did not suffer, die, and rise from the grave just to save sinners from death in hell, though he has certainly done that. He conquered death itself and all its company, redeeming the entire created order that fell from the curse of the original uh, human couple, from its curse of sin and death, and he is returning to set a seal on his new creation. Because of this, the faithful Christian can live today knowing his future is sure. And as Paul tells the believers at Thessalonica, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So, dear Christian, hear these words of life afresh today. Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann has noted that Christian theologizing about the end of the world remains a sterile project unless that future event is allowed to exert an impact on present thought and action. This is true Christian hope concerning the coming of Christ, a hope that not only comforts concerning the future, but also transforms the present. If one truly grasps the reality of biblical eschatology, that heaven breaks into earth and will one day consummate what it has already begun, it changes everything. How I think and live will be changed in light of that transforming vision. That knowledge of the coming kingdom of God can cause me to evaluate what I am investing my life in right now. The Christian lives now in light of the unseen then, when Christ will appear. The Christian lives for what will be stable eternally. And so this table of thanksgiving is set before us today, a table of reconciliation between the Lord of the universe and his purchased bride, his church. Jesus himself is the highway through a desert in bloom. He is the tabernacle of God, the axis of heaven and earth where we in the here and now commune with Christ who is seated in the heavenlies. This is a great mystery. It's a glorious mystery. Jesus makes intercession for us. Let us now eat and drink as those who understand the heavenly realities that are available to us now in this meal and in Christ and remember our proper response of thankfulness for the grace and salvation we have received in him. Amen. Holy God, your prophets have long spoken of the one who would come to save us. Now the promise is fulfilled. Now your kingdom has come near. The word has been made flesh and tabernacles among us. And we have beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only mediator between God and man. He is full of grace and truth. And we are privileged to live in the salvation he brings. Jesus, Messiah, is our banner. Our leader and companion on the highway of holiness heading towards Zion. May we go forth from this place as agents and messengers of your way and witnesses of your truth to tell all the world of the wonders we have seen and the good news we have heard today through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And now receive this benediction from Philippians 4. 
And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.